Welcome to the Bailu Podcast. Please note the information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to the ELNC Bailu Podcast. Yes, we are back after a small hiatus. Uh, so welcome back one and all. Uh, today we're tackling something I think very interesting once again, multi-asset portfolios. So we're going to look at what are they? What are the benefits for an investor? How are they constructed? And what's our view at the moment? What are our preferences amongst the asset classes? So discuss all of, to discuss all of this, I'm joined by my two colleagues, Head of Investments and Advice, Steve Godfrey. Welcome, Godders. Hi, Bajor. And an old friend of the podcast, Chief Investment Officer, Malcolm Wood. Welcome, Mal. Thanks, Berger. So together, these two gentlemen run ELNC Bailu's multi-asset product offering. Um, so to both of you, why should investors think about multi-asset portfolios? That's a great question, Berger. Great place to start. Uh, one of the key reasons we would identify is the importance of asset allocation in portfolio returns. There's been a lot of academic work done on this. And in general, anywhere from 75 to 94% of portfolio returns is dependent on the asset classes that you pick. A second benefit of uh, multi-asset funds is diversification. Uh, And this has been called one of lives or one of finance's few free lunches, essentially saying that if you select or pull together a portfolio of different assets, different asset classes that perform differently in different parts of the investment cycle, you'll get returns at a lower risk than if you didn't do that. So diversification is the second factor that uh, I'd I'd point to. How about you, Steve? Yes, I think what it enables us to do multi-asset investing is to really take advantage of opportunities and protect against risks by accessing different asset classes than just equities or cash or fixed income. By blending them all together, we're able to pick different points of the cycle and allocate more or less to each asset class to um, protect the portfolio and also um, increase returns. And I guess it comes down to correlation. So uh, the diversification point is you want assets in there that are uncorrelated uh, or less correlated with, with each other. So at one stage, one asset class can do the heavy lifting and then another stage of the cycle, another can. And I guess we've just come through a period where the benefits of diversification have been seen um, you know, quite substantially. There's been significant volatility across particularly the equities market um, and those with the right uh, construction in their portfolios would have had uh, a much or a lot less to worry about, I guess, over that very volatile uh, COVID-19 period. Um, so if we think about uh, what we, what ELNC Bailu are doing in this space, um, tell us about the ELNC Bailu multi-asset portfolios. Well, we've got two multi-asset portfolios, Nick. The first one is balanced. So that's for an investor with about a, a, a middle range tolerance for risk. And the second is the high growth uh, model. And that's for somebody who's a little more aggressive uh, in looking for returns. And we put those together across six, some would say seven different asset classes. Steve touched on equities, where we look internationally and Australia, uh, fixed income, but we also look at asset classes such as property and infrastructure, which we call a hybrid asset class, as our alternative assets. And then there's cash, of course. And we also think that uh, foreign exchange or FX is also an asset class. So 
we we construct the port those two portfolios using those uh, six or seven different asset classes. And if we're thinking about the um, ELNC value multi-asset portfolios, there's two of them, as you mentioned. What are the what are the benefits, or what are uh, I guess what we think are the unique points of uh, the Bailu portfolios? I, I guess uh, one of the things that comes to mind uh, initially, Mal, is that you and I on this podcast and through your written research give your view on asset allocation. So, um, is it an opportunity for investors to to invest alongside your published? Um, and commentated view uh, of asset allocation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, uh, Nick. So uh, oftentimes with um, fund managers, you might see them once every three, six or 12 months. But uh, here we have a situation where uh, we're giving our views on a regular basis. Uh, There's no mystique about what we think and what we're doing. Uh, There's a high degree of transparency. So that's, uh, that's a unique benefit of these portfolios. Steve, any other benefits of the portfolios from your perspective? Yeah, so I suppose taking a little bit further, because of the way these portfolios are managed, so we we manage them on a um, custodial platform called Hub24, we're able to make the changes um, at any point in time to express our views. So of the three key tenets or drivers of return, and the first and foremost is asset allocation, uh, and that's really strategic asset allocation or your long-term outlook on what the asset classes will do and then adjusting the weightings to each based on that long-term outlook. The second is TAA or tactical dynamic asset allocation. This is more of a short-term view where we're um, looking at what will happen in sort of the next, you know, three to six months as opposed to that 12-month or longer view of an SAA. So by uh, using these portfolios where we make the changes at any point in time we think we need to, you're actually getting the truest expression um, of what our views are, and we're able to make really quick changes to uh, take advantages of opportunities. So, for instance, um, earlier this year, when the the currency had fallen quite substantially uh, to less than 60 cents, we were able to hedge the vast majority of the portfolio quite quickly um, over a few days, whereas other people um, who may be giving uh, more advice on a less regular period uh, may not have been able to do that as quickly. So you're actually getting our really uh, tactical views as well as our long-term SAA views. Okay, so what we uh, like to do on this podcast is um, get under the hood a little bit in terms of how things work. So uh, the investment process of the uh, ELNC Bailu multi-asset portfolios, Steve's mentioned the three stages, strategic asset allocation, tactical, and then security selection. So how does the process work? What is our investment process for the portfolios? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Nick, uh, every 18, 24 months, we sit down and do what we call our strategic asset allocation. So that's a thorough analysis of expected returns from markets over the longer term. We roughly do a five to 10 year horizon. And of course, you know, we're looking at big themes when we do that to do with demographics, reform, uh, inflation outlooks and so on. Uh, Then uh, a second stage, which we update uh, quarterly in written research, is our tactical dynamic views. And as Steve mentioned, this is where we're trying to take advantage of shorter term opportunities and shorter term events uh, that we think create, uh, uh, create opportunities for investors. So that could be something like a view on the Aussie dollar to do with commodity prices, 
parts of the cycle, so the housing markets uh, downturn of the last couple of years, those sorts of shorter-term views where we try to express those uh, in a tactical view. And then, as, as uh, you mentioned, security selection, I'll defer to Steve on that. Yeah, so when we're using our um, security selection uh, process, we, we use the four Ps, which is people, process, performance and price. Uh, and what we actually are doing here is starting to look at what uh, we're actually trying to gain exposure to. So we um, are big believers in, in active management. We're also big believers in passive management. So we really will be using the best possible um, security or fund to give us the truest expression of what we want to achieve. So, for instance, if we just want really cheap, passive um, Australian equities exposure, we can buy A200, which is the uh, top 200 equities in Australia by market cap, uh, for seven basis points. So we'll use that. In emerging markets, uh, where we think there is good opportunity for active management, we'll use FEMX instead of a passive exposure. And FEMX is the Fidelity uh, Global Emerging Markets Fund, which is actively managed. Uh, and we think they can take advantage of some of the opportunities emerging markets. So we'll use both passive and active in different times, depending on what we're trying to get exposure to. Then to pick the best securities, we'll use our four-piece process where we're looking at um, the, the, the people who run the fund, the underlying investment process, how they performed over time, and then what the price is. From a price perspective, we're after the best risk-adjusted returns after fees. We're cognizant of fees, but it's not a case of let's pick the cheapest possible uh, fund for the sake of it. We're actually after the best return after fees. And just to give people a sense of it, you know, looking through um, an example of one of the portfolios. So in line with what you're saying, there's a mix there of um, ETFs, exchange traded funds, active management and, and funds from uh, fund managers, um, and then also some uh, occasionally some listed investment companies as well. I think it is one of the examples where we've added value, which is buying uh, licks at unusual discounts and then selling them out when those discounts have narrowed. And to give us a sense, um, Steve, for those who are new to the concept of, of multi-asset uh, portfolios or asset allocation more generally, um, you mentioned the two uh, LNC Bailey products, the, the balanced and the growth. So to give us a little bit of a, a, a feel for the allocation of equities to those two products from a strategic a asset allocation perspective. So one of the key tenets of our investment philosophy is an equity bias. So whilst we believe in multi-asset investing, uh, we believe the best risk-adjusted returns uh, over the long term are by having an equity bias. What that translates to in the portfolios is, is we will look to use equities when we think the opportunity outweighs the risk. From a balanced perspective, um, that means that portfolio is more a sort of a 60-40 type of uh, portfolio, so 60% equities, 40% defensive, but we do have quite a wide range around that which we can adjust in line with what our outlook is. The high growth portfolio is more of a 100% equities type portfolio. Both of them will have a little bit of cash um, just due to the mechanics of what needs to happen. And, you know, that could be a long-term uh, sort of weighting of 1% to 2% um, for the mechanics side. But we will use cash as a structural allocation if we think we need to. So at the moment, uh, I think we're holding about 5% in the high growth and about 16 17% in the balance. 
in cash. Okay, so that uh, is clear um, and gives us a good feel for um, the makeup of the portfolios. But it's a good segue into speaking to Mal on his uh, detailed view on asset allocation and the outlook for investment markets at the moment. And going back to what you, you gentlemen said a few points ago, one of the key benefits of our portfolios, the ELNC value portfolios, is the transparency of being able to invest in the views and the published view um, of ELNC value, which is mainly Malcolm Woods as Chief Investment Officer. So I guess that means that your view is all the more important, Mal, as the manager of the uh, of the portfolio. So there's lots going on in the world. Uh, there's COVID coming. Hopefully there's COVID going as well. Uh, what's your latest view on Australia in a, in a global context? Well, Nick, we were quite cautious on Australia uh, coming into COVID, thinking that... Uh, a lack of reform, that sort of reform malaise and uh, sluggish growth, particularly from the consumer, was going to hold Australia back. But we do think COVID has actually acted as a bit of a uh, game changer on those two factors. So reform is back on the agenda and a government that was very reluctant to use its balance sheet to stimulate the economy has come in in spades on that. So we actually have gone from underweight to overweight Australia uh, during the course of COVID-19. I think that's uh, that's been a pretty solid call so far. In addition, as Steve mentioned, we went from being uh, very bearish on the Aussie dollar uh, to bullish. And so we think that uh, Australia's relative outlook has improved. Uh, our commodity prices have held up extremely well. And so we're more positive on the Aussie dollar as well. So uh, that's the, uh, the Australia view. We think that... Uh, we are a reasonable chance of uh, pulling off a V-shaped recovery. Uh, we do think our performance in containing and managing COVID has been good, but the, the stimulus has been outstanding and a bit of luck, a bit of good management, but Australia seems to be well positioned in a relative sense uh, to deal with this successfully. So overweight Australia. So in terms of the global economy um, as it's positioned, um, you, Mal, have the benefit of being situated in New South Wales as we speak. Um, but in Victoria, we're back in, in lockdown. Um, it's uh, Monday morning, the 20th of July. Reading the papers, it looks like there's some additional restrictions coming in, creeping into parts of Europe. Um, how is the emergence from a global perspective um, of the COVID-19 crisis going? I think you have to take it, as you say, Nick, region by region. So uh, Asia was first in, it's first out. And we saw some strong data from China last week, real GDP up 3.2% year on year, investment product, industrial production, sorry, up 4.8% year on year. And this is a uh, what we call a low V-shaped recovery. China isn't doing anything like the stimulus that they did in 08, 09 in the GFC, but they are recovering. And we think other parts of the region, particularly Korea, Taiwan, parts of Southeast Asia have handled the crisis well as well, and they'll be uh, joining in, in the recovery. That's good news for Australia because, of course, those are our key customers for our exports, taking 84% of our exports. That differentiates Australia from elsewhere. As you say, Nick, up the other end, you've had pretty stringent lockdowns in many parts of Europe. And that meant that the downturn there was deeper. And then even with some easing of restrictions, you've got to ask whether you'll see much of a tourist season 
in Europe this year. That's, of course, a big headwind for southern European economies, such as uh, Italy and Spain. Uh, so we think Europe's a bit up the, the back of the bus. The US has actually surprised us in its resilience. We've been surprised at uh, the strength of retail sales and uh, earnings so far for this uh, reporting season. But with the COVID headwind that the US faces, we just struggle to see a V-shaped recovery there. We think it's more likely to take a while longer and probably needs a vaccine. And so you've made some changes. Your latest view is published on the 14th of July. You've made some changes recently to your uh, preferred asset allocation. Take us through uh, some of those changes and the rationale for that. Yeah, so uh, comparing to pre-COVID, as we mentioned, we've gone from underweight to overweight Australia, Australian equities, from uh, bearish on the Aussie dollar to bullish on the Aussie dollar, so unhedged international exposures to uh, significantly hedged international exposures. Uh, at, at the same time, we've reduced our international equities. We think international has performed well in the recovery, and we've pulled that back to an equal weight. Within that, reflecting that more constructive view on East Asia, we are uh, increasingly overweight emerging markets. Uh, so that's been a bit of a nuanced view there. And uh, we've remained underweight fixed income and those hybrid securities, uh, property and, and infrastructure uh, throughout. So they've been the big changes. We've also made some changes at a security level. Steve might want to highlight uh, one or two of those things that we've done. Yeah, so in line with our, um, our switch back to, or switch to, I should say, overweight Australia, we have increased the, the weighting to two of our uh, passive exposures. One's the A200 ETF, which I mentioned earlier, and the other one is MVW, which is a uh, equally weighted ETF over the ASX200. They run a couple of screens around liquidity and uh, available shares or free float, um, and then they, they equally weight uh, with some optimization, just under 100 securities. And it has a bit more of a mid-cap bias uh, because instead of having the market cap weighting where you know the top 10 form the majority of the index, um, it equally weights across those those shares. So they're the two um, main exposures in Australia. And then we've got a couple of active managers in Airly and Greencape, which have both done very well. On the international side, we have uh, substituted the majority of our US exposure from VTS or the Vanguard uh, Total US uh, Index for IHVV, which is um, iShares S&P 500 hedged. So in line with our view that we wanted to hedge a lot of our exposure, we have um, moved a lot of the US exposure to IHVV to hedge that out. And then we have uh, also hedged half of our MFS, which is a large global fund manager. We've hedged half of that uh, using the hedged version to, again, um, lock in some of that currency um, protect to the to the currency movements. There have been the main changes we've done in the security selection. One, one switch we did do, which also I want to highlight, is uh, the Magellan High Conviction Fund. They have a listed and an unlisted version of that. Uh, the listed version is close-ended, which means that its underlying uh, net tangible assets or the, the, the value of the underlying securities and what the listed price is um, can fluctuate over time. And but there is points where um, there, there is a bit of dislocation between the two and it provides an opportunity where um, you can take advantage of that dislocation and the and the discount or premium aspect of the listed price versus the underlying NTA. Uh, and we were able to take advantage of that early this year when 
the discount blew out. We sold the unlisted version, bought the listed, um, and as the, the the discount closed, we were able to sell the listed version and buy back into the unlisted. So it's another example of where we can be quite tactical to take advantage of opportunities. Okay. Um, Mal, back to you. I know one of the questions uh, that you get asked in terms of um, your view on asset allocation, we're overweight Australian equities. Um, Steve did mention that there was uh, one security in there that had a bit of a mid-cap bias, but your view on Australian large-cap equities compared to mid- and small-caps at the moment? Uh, Nick, we tend to take a view that if there's exceptional opportunities in the small-cap space, we'll we'll look for those. Um but that isn't the case at the moment. Uh, on our analysis, smalls are more expensive than the large caps. And uh, so we're, we're focusing on the large caps at this point. If I could just extend on that, that's the other reason why we do have two active managers in there. So Airly has an ASX 200 universe, Greencave has an ASX 300 universe. So those managers have the ability to go to smaller companies and include them in the portfolio um, if they think there's value and opportunity there. So that's part of the other reason why we have um, some active managers in there to, to do some of that work for us. Okay, thanks, Steve. So um, just to sum up the asset allocation piece, so Mal's uh, latest research was published on the 14th of J- July. Um, just worthwhile running through those views. So overweight Australian equities, slight underweight US, slight underweight European equities, neutral weight Japan and overweight emerging market equities, underweight property and infrastructure, underweight fixed income, neutral cash, and then overweight the Aussie dollar. Um, I guess, uh, gentlemen, all of the theory about how we construct the portfolios is interesting and all good and well, but at the end of the day, it comes down to performance. So how has performance been on these two multi-asset portfolios? Uh, Yes, we've been delighted with the performance of the funds. We've been running them formally for just over a year and both have significantly outperformed uh, their benchmarks and their peers. Uh, We also think that uh, in a shadow sense, we've been running the portfolios for two and a half years. So we've been able to demonstrate, we think, good performance over an extended period now. And to put those those comments in numbers, um, we have, so in May, we we ticked over 12 months. And so that means that we've got 13 months performance um, up to the end of June. And the one-year number for the balanced portfolio was 2.95%. And since inception, so its inception date was the 15th of May 2019, since inception number is 4.45%. With the high growth, the one-year number was 4% and the since inception number 5.71. I just want to highlight that those performance numbers um, include uh, all MER, or management expense ratio fees, are subtracted, so they're after all those fees, I should say. Um, but if there are potentially some other costs around advisor fees that, that may be applicable uh, depending on the client circumstance. Okay, so that is about it for this edition of the podcast. The easiest way to get more information on the multi-asset portfolios that we've been talking about is speak to your ELNC Bailu advisor. And of course, you can get the latest performance reports as well as, as, well as uh, Mal's latest views, news and views from Mal. Um, including his preferred asset allocation on the Bailey website as per usual. Thank you to our guests today, Mal Wood and Steve Godfrey. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to the Bailey Podcast. 
The information in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. You should not rely on general advice without making your own inquiries or your own assessments about the suitability of the financial products or services mentioned.